You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll learn about how workers in the supply chain for food, from produce to meat, are being affected by the pandemic. There's employers who have not even, you know, talked to their workers about COVID-19. Employers who refuse to uh, space workers farther apart, uh, even though workers have asked for it. It's really kind of a wide variety out there. I mean, I think some ag employers are trying to do the, the right thing, and then there's others who are not. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. An estimated 3 million people work on farms in the U.S. every year to raise and harvest the nation's produce. The meat and poultry industry is estimated to employ another half million people. Working conditions in both industries tend to be harsh, and many workers have limited access to health care. With the coronavirus pandemic, these industries are seeing outbreaks. To better understand how the pandemic is affecting the workers who ensure we have access to food, I talked to a reporter who's been covering the food supply chain. My name is Gosia Wozniacka. I'm a senior reporter at Civil Eats, which is a news nonprofit that's focused on agriculture and environmental issues. I want to start by asking you about a quote in one of your stories from a woman from a worker organization called the Food Chain Workers Alliance. She told you, in the midst of this crisis, people are finally realizing that food workers really exist. You've been working on issues of farming and food production and how the people who work in these industries are affected for a long time. So I'm guessing it's not news to you, the conditions that people work in. But do you think that that's true, that there's suddenly more of a collective realization that, yes, people who are involved in producing the food that we eat are vulnerable to the virus, too, and are vulnerable in general? I think uh, we've seen a lot of news stories about folks who work both in agriculture and in uh, various other stages of food production. So whether it be meatpacking, slaughterhouses, or other food production facilities. And so that um, is putting them more in the sort of mainstream consciousness. Uh, They're more on people's minds. And then also the fact that you know, people are worried about where their food is going to come from. You know, there's some empty shelves in the supermarkets, although it really depends on where you go. But people, I think, during the pandemic have food on their mind a little more than um, they did before. And they want to make sure that they have enough to eat. And so I think, uh, you know, just thinking more about the idea of food and where they can get it and from whom sort of naturally leads them to maybe think about the people who actually make the food. Yeah. Yeah, she also told you that she wants to make sure people understand the exploitation that they're seeing is possible because it's a pre-existing condition. What have conditions been like for food supply chain workers before the virus hit? Sounds like not very good. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the food production and, and the food and agriculture, it's such a wide net to consider. But if you look at everywhere from agriculture to people who work in the food production facilities or meatpacking plants, um, most of these folks are immigrants or people of color. A lot of these jobs uh, don't pay very good wages. The conditions, whether it be in the fields or in packing houses or in slaughterhouses, are not very good. Uh, these are back-breaking jobs, uh, literally, 
this puts extreme pressure on their bodies. Um, these are jobs that they have to do very quickly. Um, they, you know, stand or lean entire day. These are just really difficult jobs uh, to do, which is why a lot of immigrants and refugees end up doing them. And they're not well paid. They're hard. Um, and they're also very dangerous. A lot of people uh, who work in meatpacking slaughterhouses have accidents. They're exposed to various fumes of chemicals that are used uh, in those plants. Uh, so these are jobs that are not good for your health. Can you give me a sense of how interconnected our national food supply chain is? Like, I'm here in San Francisco, for example. If I'm buying a food at my local grocery store, what are the chances that it's coming from Washington, from Oregon, or even farther away from the East Coast, from New, from New York? Is it even possible to tell? So I think it really depends on where you're shopping. If you're shopping at your local farmer's markets, then your uh, chances of getting food uh, from a local farm are much higher. Um, but if you go into the supermarket, um, as most of us do, um, then you're likely getting a lot of food from uh, out of state, uh, as well as from the other coast. Um, but also, um, a lot of our fruits and vegetables come from outside of the country. So you're getting peppers from Mexico, for example. Lots and lots and lots of our fruits and vegetables come from out of the country. So um, this is a supply chain where goods are trucked from long distances, uh, from coast to coast, from out of our borders. Um, oftentimes, the uh, fruit uh, is picked when it's not ripe. It's uh, ripened on its way or it's ripened with a special gas to make it look the right color. We're certainly not eating local as we all would like to do, but most of us don't. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the conditions and how that's interacting with the coronavirus pandemic. You reported most recently on coronavirus infections among farm workers. This is a community that's particularly at risk of exposure because of their working conditions and their living conditions. We'll get to that in a moment, but it struck me that you wrote until recently, relatively few people have tested positive for the virus. But now that workers have started getting tested, it looks like the virus has likely spread much more widely among farm workers than people might have been expecting. Hmm. What are some reasons our knowledge of the spread of the virus among farm workers might be limited? What, how much don't we know? Most of the farm workers out there are young men, not all of them. Some of them are older and uh, also do have chronic conditions, but many of them are young men um, who tend to be relatively healthy. Uh, they work outside, so that's uh, a factor that uh, that is on their side. Uh, most of all, this is a population that's uh, immigrant. Uh, many of them don't speak English. Many of them uh, lack immigration documents. Um, so this is not a population that comes forward to ask for things um, or make demands. Um, most of these workers live paycheck to paycheck. Um, they are seasonal. Most of the time, a farm worker does not work 365 days a year, um, does not work 12 months a year. Uh, they often work for several months very intensively, and then they have many, many months that are off um, during the off, off season uh, in farming. And so they don't make a lot of money these are folks who are really low income. And so when they are making money, when they are working, 
um, they need to be out there. They need to be earning those paychecks so that they have enough to live on and so that their families have enough to live on because they depend on this money. And so for this reason, many workers are really reluctant to volunteer. Hey, I have the disease uh, because if you do, then you need to stay home for at least two weeks. And most of these workers, if they stay home, guess what? They're not going to get their paycheck um, mm-hmm. and they really cannot afford to lose two or three weeks worth of pay you know, in the peak of the season when they're uh, starting to harvest. That's a very uh, big reason why many workers don't come forward about COVID-19. But also this is in the past why many workers in general don't don't come forward when they're sick um, because they just can't lose uh, those paychecks. And many workers, um, most farm workers, don't have uh, sick pay. Uh, They... uh, they uh, many of them don't have health insurance, and uh, and so they you know if they take time off, uh, they lose money, basically. Also, their bosses uh, really uh, don't look well up upon them if they take time off, and mm. so they may not rehire them. So let's say if a worker decides, hey, um, I need to stay home because my kids are home and nobody there's nobody else to take care of them because schools are closed. Well, their crew leader. Or their employer may not be very sympathetic and they may not get a job when they come back or when they want to come back Um, or say they're, you know, feeling feverish and uh, have some other symptoms and decide that might be safer to stay home. Um, You know, their crew boss may say, hey, uh, you know, I've got other workers waiting. Uh, You go home and don't come back. And I've actually heard that story from uh, from workers and from worker organizers that uh, workers were told, you know, to go home. So, yikes! And then sounds pretty devastating for somebody whose entire income might depend on just this short period of time during the season where they're harvesting. Exactly. And then, you know, another big reason is that uh, there really is very little testing of farm workers. Um, many of these workers live in rural areas, um, pretty isolated areas where there's, you know, virtually no testing. Uh, so we we really just don't know. Um, if workers are sick or not. And I think um, one of the cases that I wrote about that happened in Washington, uh, where a very large uh, fruit uh, company uh, tested its workers uh, and half of their half of their workforce at one of their housing sites tested positive for COVID. And none of them had any symptoms of the disease. A, a couple of them had like a mild cough, but that's not you know, that's not COVID-19. I mean, nobody would have guessed. So it was a complete yeah. surprise to the employer um, that these workers tested positive. And I suspect that in many, many crews are workers who have the disease. They are just not displaying symptoms that are, are considered COVID-like symptoms, or, you know, they are feeling sick, but they keep going to work because they need to. Yeah. So how have some of the employers that you've reported on in the agriculture business responded to the pandemic, first of all, and then to tests, if they had them, that showed that there were cases among their workers. Like you said, for this one business, it was a complete surprise. Yeah. Well, so what did they do? And we're talking about agriculture specifically, right? In the field. Yes. Okay. So it, I think there's been a variety of responses. Uh, everything from you know employers who are, are very uh, diligent and who have started training their workers, who distrib- you know distributed masks, who have... Um, 
spaced out their uh, workers in the field so that you know they're not so close together when they're when they're working whether you know whether they're harvesting or whether they're doing other work um, that's pre-harvest uh, that they're not so close together um, but there there's also quite a lot of employers um, from what I'm hearing from labor organizers that and farm workers who said say that their uh, employers have done absolutely nothing I mean there's employers who have not even you know, talk to their workers about COVID-19, employers who refuse to uh, space workers farther apart, uh, even though workers have asked for it. It's really kind of a wide variety out there. I mean, I think some ag employers are trying to do the, the right thing, and then there's others who are not. And it's not just about how closely people are working together, right? Because in the case of farm workers, there's often also communal housing and commu communal transportation back and forth from the housing to the work site, right? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, probably in my understanding, the, the, the work sites are are the smallest of the problems. I, in my in my understanding, the biggest problem is transportation, because many of these workers don't own their own vehicles, uh, or can't drive because they don't have a license, uh, and so they uh, have a ride system that's basically like a ride sharing system where they pay somebody who drives them to the fields, and so these are uh, workers who will commute in a car, and there's like six of them in a car um, every day, uh, or Uh, many workers are bused to work on like school type buses. Um, and so then there is like, you know, dozens or more uh, workers inside a single bus uh, or um, they are taken into the uh, work sites in, in advance. Uh, so um, then they're crammed in a van. So that it's multiple workers, uh, you know, going together and, and sitting in this car or van or bus uh, for for a while because you know the work sites are not close by so it's it's um they're in each other's contacts and then um then the other thing is that uh, a lot of farm workers uh, live close together so um there's two types of workers that i should mention um one is the guest workers so these are uh, folks who are uh coming to the U.S., mostly from Mexico, but also from other countries on these visas that are called H-2A visas. Um, and they allow them to work here on a temporary basis, and then they go home back to their families. Um, and so these folks, um, when they come here, they live in employer-provided housing. And most of the employer-provided housing is either dormitory-style um, housing. So it's it's uh, rooms where multiple people live together, uh, very often uh, sleeping on bunk beds. Um, or uh, it's also uh, uh, hotels where they live because there's a shortage of housing. So many of these workers are placed in hotels, cheap hotels. And uh, again, in those cheap hotels, they'll live like three, four, five to a room. Um, in both of those situations, they will have communal kitchens, communal bathrooms, um, uh, you know, communal living areas where they um, are together and, uh, you know, again, dozens of people together. So um, they are exposed constantly to each other. Uh, and then people who are domestic workers, so folks who live here, have lived here for, you know, were born here or have lived here for many, many years um, and have their families here, uh, they live in housing uh, that's also very crowded. 
uh, often farm workers in the community will uh, live in uh, multiple people to a room um, or will live, um, you know, multiple families to an apartment. So there is, you know, there's uh, times when it's like two or three families in a single apartment, um, you know, that under other circumstances, only one family should inhabit. Um, so folks really live in very crowded conditions, uh, partly because of poverty. I mean, they really can't afford anything else. And a lot of these a lot of these farming areas are, you know, prime real estate areas like uh, Monterey Con uh, County, you know, is on the uh, coast. It's really beautiful. And there is really no housing for farm workers. So um, and many places are like that. You know, the housing is a, a huge exposure point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds very familiar because here in San Francisco, there was recently a testing initiative in the mission and the majority of the people who tested positive were low income workers. And mm -hmm. one of the suspected reasons for that is because they live in very close quarters when they come home from work. I mean, they're already having a, a high exposure at work. Then they come home and they live in close quarters with other people and the problem just is exacerbated. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the main thing is that it's just people are forced to live together. They can't, you know, the, the CDC guidelines say if somebody's sick, you know, they need to have their own room and their own restroom. Like, I mean, that's kind of yeah, a joke. Like, I mean, that's not even possible. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. for most people, it's a joke, you know, for these folks, like who can have their own room? Like they're living like 10 people to a room sometimes. We'll get back to this conversation with Gosha Vosnyatska in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP would like to thank the awesome, forward-thinking institutional supporters of the San Francisco Public Press, including the San Francisco Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reva and David Logan Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation, the Fund for Nonprofit News at the Miami Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the California Endowment, the Center for Cultural Innovation, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and the local independent online news publishers. This is KSFP-LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM. Let's hear more from Gosha about how food supply chain workers have been affected by the pandemic. Let's talk about another industry that you've written about, the meat processing industry, because here working conditions are, in terms of the coronavirus, often even worse. Workers are often shoulder to shoulder. They're in crowded, enclosed spaces. Several meat processing plants around the nation have closed. Several thousand workers have recently gotten sick and tested positive for the coronavirus. And about a dozen people have died from COVID-19. More than 640 cases have been reported at just one pork factory in South Dakota. Can you say more about what it's like to work at a meatpacking or processing plant under normal circumstances and how that might be affecting what we're seeing in terms of the coronavirus outbreak here? Yeah, I mean, like I, like I said, these are really difficult jobs under any circumstances. Uh, these are jobs where people work literally short, shoulder to shoulder next to each other. Um, they're... Um, 
they have very little time to work because the uh, speed of the lines uh, down which the meat is traveling is very fast. Uh, and so they have, you know, only seconds to react. It's a very stressful job. Um, they are very, uh, very close to each other. It's very loud from what I've heard workers say. Uh, it's extremely loud. Uh, and so these are jobs that already were difficult before. And I think now uh, with uh, with COVID, you know, these workers uh, realize that they're in danger and that's probably creating a lot more stress than before. Yeah, labor organizers have been raising the alarm about how dangerous these conditions are for workers for some time now. So same question as with farm workers, how have meat production companies responded to those concerns and to these positive tests? I think based on my reporting, it seems to me that they uh, were kind of late to the game. I mean, they, some of them uh, instituted uh, some measures, but they were kind of slow. And uh, most of them uh, was really in response to uh, mounting cases at their facilities that they started to institute more measures, uh, such as, uh, uh, for example, most social distancing, trying to put plexiglass between workers or uh, plastic sheeting between workers uh, or uh, trying to sanitize uh, surfaces, those kinds of things. But I think a lot of that was in response to cases already present or outbreaks already present. And uh, it, it seems to me like they didn't do enough proactive uh preparation, uh, knowing that, uh, that these were the conditions that workers were in and that uh, they were likely at very high risk. And this is an argument that uh, uh, labor unions have brought forward as well. I mean, I've talked to uh, some workers who have said that basically about their facilities, that um, not enough was done. Uh, and, uh, and these measures mostly came too late. Yeah, in fact, you reported on one man, Sal Nojoria Sanchez, who'd worked for more than 30 years at a beef production plant in Colorado, and he actually died from coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And his family spoke to you. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what his family told you about the conditions there and how, how the company responded to this case. Yeah, so this family, um, when the men became ill, uh, basically they... they um, they said that the company had not told any of the workers that there had been cases in their facility. Um, so the company was aware that uh, there were cases, uh, but they did not announce it to any of the workers. And this family only knew of one other person who had been sick. So they were aware uh, that something was going on. Um, and when the daughter tried to call the facility to tell them that her father was sick uh, with coronavirus and that he had tested positive. She found a lot of resistance. She was basically, you know, told, no, call this other person, no, call this other person, no, call this other person. So she was kind of given the mm -hmm. runaround and nobody really wanted to listen and uh, take note of this. Uh, and it, it really took a while for the facility to respond. Um, so she felt very bad because she felt like the facility was kind of ignoring her. And uh, that meant that, you know, all these other workers who had been exposed to her father um, unknowingly um, were also at risk and didn't know it. So um, this family was very, very upset with the company, um, especially because her father had given so many years to this company, had worked for such a long time for them. Um, and, uh, and yet 
you know, so little attention was given to his to his case and its impact. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering where the government is in all this. I mean, you reported that advocates have filed complaints with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and they'd pushed OSHA to issue emergency guidelines for food workers. But at the time that you were reporting this, in, in I think in April, OSHA just hadn't responded. And, you know, who, who are these companies beholden to when it comes to implementing standards that will protect workers from the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's been confusion about that. And uh, from the response, um, uh, what I've seen is that uh, the county, local county health departments were the ones getting involved with these uh, companies and uh, mm -hmm. tracking their cases. And once the outbreak got really noticeable, uh, the governors uh, often also got involved and uh, in some cases even pressured the company to shut down or temporarily shut down. Um, but this has really changed because at the end of April, uh, President Trump uh, issued an executive order basically saying that uh, these uh, plans are critical infrastructure and they must remain open uh, so as to assure our meat supply. And so now uh, states and counties uh, have to uh, basically support that, uh, that order. And uh, these plans uh, have to uh, follow uh, guidelines from the CDC um, and others, um, but they are basically um, required to bring the workers back and to stay open and uh, to keep working and churning out the meat. Yeah, I mean, what do you expect will come of that? Because this executive order to keep them open and keep producing meat comes at a time when some of them were shutting down because they simply were having such significant outbreaks. It, it, can it even be done to protect workers at this point if they have to continue working? Yeah, I mean, it's questionable. Um, I don't know what will happen if there will be more outbreaks or not. Um, the USDA just issued a uh, list of facilities that are returning to operating uh, order and uh you know, it, they're supposed to be following these guidelines. Whether these guidelines actually will be enough, uh, it's uh, we don't really know. Um, I, I'm I'm sure it will be better than previously, since uh, now there's some at least some protections uh, rather than none. Uh, but uh, I don't know if it's enough uh, to protect the workforce and to prevent. Uh, these clusters from uh, popping up uh, in these facilities. And just to note, this is not um, just meatpacking and slaughterhouses in the U.S. I mean, other countries have seen similar outbreaks in uh, meatpacking right. operations as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a global issue, I think. And uh, these facilities are especially prone to such outbreaks. Um, but also other food processing facilities have uh, seen, now seen outbreaks across the U.S., and elsewhere. So um, it, I think that, you know, just uh, these enclosed spaces where workers work very closely together um, have something that really allows COVID to spread very quickly. You know, we're all sort of consumers of food, <laughs> um, unless you're really living off the grid. And I think for a lot of people, it's troubling to hear about how harrowing the conditions are for people who produce some of this food, whether it's farm workers or people in the meatpacking industry or other food processing, is there a way to more ethic make more ethical choices or make choices that better protect workers uh, when when we are looking to feed ourselves? Well, I, I don't want to tell anybody how to eat. 
I think if you're eating more local food, it's probably a little bit of a safer bet, um, you know, supporting your local farmers, especially if you know farmers, um, farms that are in your area um, that you can support in this time. Um, you know, local farmers, some of the local farmers, CSAs, um, are seeing a, a huge uptick in uh, the number of customers. And I think that's a great thing. And uh, I would say sticking with that model after the pandemic would be great because um, that's really much healthier for our so food supply and uh, for the workers. But, you know, I realize that not everybody can afford a CSA. Many of them are extremely expensive. And uh, many people do have to shop at a supermarket. I think, you know, maybe eating a little bit less meat uh, and also being very conscientious about food waste, not wasting the food that you buy would help. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the reporting that you're doing and, and that you spent some time telling me about it. Of course, anytime. That was Gosha Vozhniatska, senior reporter with Civil Eats. Read her work at civileats.com. I'm Laura Wenes, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative news organization, sfpublicpress.org. Host and reporter, Laura Wenes, producer and contributor, Mel Baker. The publisher of the Public Press is Lila LaHood. Executive Director, Michael Stoll. Director of Membership and Community, Daphne Magnawa. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional themes from the Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening.